You are listening to the Coming Up for Air podcast hosted by Air Moms Lori McDougall and Annie Highwater. This podcast is sponsored by alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up for Air brings together two wonderful people, both of whose adult sons are in recovery from opiate addiction. Annie Highwater and Lori McDougall have been through years of their loved one's active addiction. They have come to understand the direct link between taking care of yourself and being able to help your loved one. During these conversations, Lori and Annie address the questions and concerns brought up by Allies and Recovery members. And now, coming up for air with Lori McDougall and Annie Highwater. Okay, so hi, Annie. We're back at Coming Up for Air. How are you this week? Hello, I'm good. How are you? I'm pretty good, hanging in there. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so today's topic is uh, crisis. And uh, the the first question we have, or kind of like the title, I guess, that kind of goes along with this, and Annie, you're the one who came up with this, and I love it. (laughs) How do I fold the laundry or sit through a meeting when my life is falling apart? Yeah, that was a question I asked daily for a while. How do I just fold the laundry or go grocery shopping or do normal mundane things or even normal stressful things when chaos and crisis is all around me? Right. I I remember the same type of thing with my son. Uh, him not being home, him being, you know, gone. I have no idea where he is. And and you want me to act like everything's normal and I need to just go on with my life. And to be honest with you, I couldn't. No, I couldn't either. I had to sit through a lot of meetings or sit with clients and I would see crisis popping up on my phone. The phone would ring and text messages and emails were exploding behind me like volcanoes going off. And I'm trying to talk, you know, as calmly as possible and shut mm-hmm. that out. And it's almost, I mean, it almost just causes a nervous breakdown. Right. Right. In fact, I think I did have a nervous breakdown, to be honest with you. I think you do. I think I had several. I mean, you just kind of lose your mind, and it makes you crazy. I mean, it just makes you – it's so stressful. And So I haven't had stress like that in a while. My son's going into his fifth year of recovery. Not that it couldn't repeat. Um, And I do have other people close to me that struggle with addiction issues. But I think that once you go through the process of learning tools and going through it, even if it does repeat, you're not going to be as affected or maybe handle it in, in as unhealthy ways as you do in the beginning. Uh, agreed. Absolutely agreed. But I also think that it never quite leaves you. I think you're changed. Oh, no. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I actually, just for sake of the topic, I looked up the meaning of the word crisis, and it has the definitions I pulled were um, three definitions. Um, the, a, t- a crisis is a time of intense difficulty, trouble, or danger. And the synonyms were, of that were emergency, disaster, catastrophe, calamity. And that's, you know, absolutely what a crisis of having a loved one struggle with substance use disorder, you know, we call it SUD, extreme excessive alcoholism and the behavior that goes with that, mental health issues, suicidal tendencies, addiction, all of that. Another definition for crisis is a time when difficult or important decisions must be made. The synonyms are critical point, turning point, crossroads, moment of truth, point of no return. And I think like you said, you're forever changed. You do have a point of no return where life is never, life can get good again. Life can even be better again, but you are never the same after this crisis. Mm -hmm. And then the last point I thought was interesting 
the last meaning of crisis is the turning point of a disease when an important change takes place indicating either recovery or death and the actual the vernacular the original meaning of the word crisis is in greek it actually the word crisis actually means decision Oh, that's interesting. I, I did not know that. that. I thought so as well. I just discovered that today. So I thought we would kind of go through the structure, not to just drone on and on, but to break it down in three parts um, of the definition. And the first meaning is a time of intense difficulty, trouble, or danger. So what do you have to say about that? Well, um, I remember these feelings, right? These these feelings of emergency, disaster, um, catastrophe, calamity. I remember them vividly. In yeah. fact, I feel like they kind of became a part of my soul. Right. Right. They really right. became a part of me. I know that they changed me. They changed my response to my world. Um, they brought on worry like I had never experienced before. I always call that primal fear. It wasn't just fear. It was a terror. Like it was primal fear. Yep. Yep. Um, and, and I can say that I feel like I, I could have been drowning in that worry. And in fact, I think I was drowning in that worry. Uh, and I think that that worry could have swallowed me up. Yeah. Just swallowed me whole if I had let it. And, and to be honest with you, I think I could have let it. And I think if I had, it would have been the much easier thing to do. Right. I think that if I had just said, oh, you know what? fine, this is, this is where I'm at, this is where I'm going to stay, uh, then it, it just would have been so much easier uh, than trying to find a way to kind of uh, pull myself up. Yeah. And, and I kind of, I look at it as, um, as climbing a cliff right, where I have one of those, I don't even know what they call it, you know, when they, when you're um, climbing a, a rock repelling. wall. It is repelling. Or, you know, those things that they like stick in. Oh, the hammer the, type thing. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to use your arms to kind of pull yourself up one step at a time, one step at a time. And that's really how I felt. And I felt that way for a good six months. I kind of let myself stay there. And I've talked about this before. I really, I, I let myself stay there for six months and kind of let myself just wallow in that worry and that, and that frustration. Uh, and then I realized, uh, I, I've got to get myself out of this. I think you do move through that. Um, I always like to give credit to any help I got, resources, whether it's a book or a podcast or whatever. And one of my favorite books is Rising Strong by Brene Brown. And she talked about a term called chandeliering. Her husband is a, I believe, a pediatrician and had had a patient come in and jammed her finger and it was broken and jammed in. And he said, there's something called exquisite pain. When you're in so much pain that to even be slightly touched will put you on the chandeliers. So they call it that exquisite pain that causes you to just immediately hit the ceiling. And I think, especially in the initial phases of finding out you have an addiction, you know, tearing through your home like a tornado, you are in that chandeliering place where you haven't come out of that crisis introduction yet. And I mean, it's, until things are in place and you take action or you find support and start getting footing again, I think you're in that place where you you just are swallowed up. I always kind of felt like I was drowning and I would just get my nose up above water to breathe and it would, something would pull me right back under. And it was just a constant state of life or death and terrible storm. Yes. Yep. That's, that's exactly how I felt. 
Yeah. I wrote down a couple of tools of therapy because I didn't know a lot of these things going in. And a lot of times you think, oh, I'm going to go see a marriage counselor because my marriage is in, in trouble, or I'll see a family counselor because our family is struggling. Nobody typically goes into therapy because everything's great. You do when a crisis hits. But what I didn't know originally is that there's different types of therapy, and you may know this, but I'm a layman. There's trauma therapy, which that's pretty self-explanatory. That's somebody that specializes in complex post-traumatic stress. There, and, or if you have adjustment disorder, that's where a lot of change hits you. There's a period of time you go through adjustment. That's somebody that's going through intense grief. There's also emotion-focused therapy, and that is based on methods designed to help people express, regulate, make sense of intense emotions, transform them into peaceful outcomes. There's cognitive behavioral therapy. That is short term. It can be eight to 12 weeks with a therapist. Goal-oriented treatment that is a hands-on approach to problem solving. That's where those intense emotions hit and you're taught patterns of thought to kind of redirect yourself. You know, for instance, well, as soon as there'd be a change I would notice in my son or a conflict would rise up with in my mom, I'd go immediately to worst case scenario. And it's, here we go. It's happening again. Everyone's going to turn on me. No one's going to listen to me. I'm going to get harassed at work. And I had to stop and think, I'm doing it again. I'm forecasting. I'm taking off running with this urgency. And then the last is my favorite. It's dialectical behavioral therapy. Have you heard of that? I love it so much. Yes, yes I have actually. Oh, I just really, I mean, I'm a big fan of therapy. I think that if more people were in therapy, we would probably have a, le- a lot less issues. In, in I agree. I think everybody should family. be in therapy at least once in their life. It should be required college and high school classes, even elementary. Yeah. I believe it. And dialectical is the combination of cognitive and behavioral therapy. And it adds mindfulness and self-soothing techniques. And it adds, what I like is a component of distraction. And that's not avoiding or denying. That is when something rises up, when a, as soon as a problem hits, our emotion and our mind goes in our normal pattern. And it's a way of stepping outside to take a walk, go put your hands in some mud. Um, some people say hold ice cubes in your hands until they melt because that sh- kind of shocks your nervous system and the ice cubes win over the emotion. Something to distract you just long enough to where you're not making your usual distressed decisions. Yeah, I actually, when my son, when this, when crisis first hit us, I did reach out for professional help pretty early. Uh, I would say within weeks. And one of the techniques that she had taught me was to wear an elastic band around my wrist. Yes, that was one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Click and to click the elastic band and to try and change my line of thought. Right, and it works. It, it seems so simple. And as Dominica said in some of the craft training, because she talks about a lot of this as well, it, you don't unlearn these things once you learn them. You don't go through, like I have a book, a workbook I actually got off of Amazon and I just took myself through it again after I'd had it behind me for years. And it was kind of a refresher, but it's not like these situations are going to happen all over again. And I'm going to go back to old ways of handling. Those tools are now in there that you learn them, the right. walking away, distraction, the therapy is important and know what kind of specialized therapy would work for you. That is as important as going to therapy, in my opinion. Right. And I still do use a lot of the techniques that I've learned. I um, I will go back to them, like if I'm in the middle of a crisis or if I feel it's starting to well up, I might get lost in it for a little bit. Yeah, you do. I, but I'll also go back to, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, stop, 
think, what have you done in the past? What were some of the things that you did in the past? And I'll try and refer back to them. I'll try and go back to, okay, I'll get up my elastic band. I also, I also learned this other uh, technique of calming myself down because I, I've told you in the past I'm a crier and um, I spent a lot of time in my youth being told I shouldn't cry. And I went to see a uh, psychologist and she 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 saw me holding in my crying and I told her that it was in my esophagus right and I and it would it would just oh it would just overwhelm my hot lump yeah exactly and it and it just it actually hurt it physically hurt and I would swallow and I would try and hold that cry down and finally she said okay I, I was hysterically crying and she said, okay, I am going to teach you a trick to calm yourself down. And she said it was the vagal nerve and she taught me this technique and maybe people can look it up online, but she taught me the, it? it's vroom, but it's the vagal nerve, nerve. it's V-E-G-A-L, I think. I'm sure and, Google will direct you if you get yeah, it. Yeah. And she taught me to use the word vroom, and it was amazing. I said it twice, and my whole body just leveled out and calmed down. And I was just, I was just amazed. I was like, "This is this is something I will hold on to." Right. Well, is the vagal is that something in your brain? Is that no, you know, that's a that's a really good question. We'll I'm not sure. Up. I would have to look it up. Maybe it's something that actually runs through your esophagus. I, I'm not sure. You just know that it worked, and you have to it find it what works. works. In, in my workbook, it's called the Dialectical Behavior Therapy Skills Workbook, and it's for people that are either wanting to take themselves through it or therapists that are taking clients and patients through it. It's by Matthew McKay, Jeffrey Wood and Jeffrey Brantley. It's really, really good, but it has lists of things like, would you watch a funny movie? Would you read a book? Would you go sew? Would you vent to a friend? Would you do breathing techniques? And you just really have to find what fits. And you'll know based on your personality <clears throat> and the structure of the situation, you know what pulls you down off that chandelier. Right. And those are things you don't unlearn once you start tweaking. It's, it's, I always look at the whole situation kind of like turning a ship. It didn't get off in the wrong direction overnight. It's a slow process to turn things around toward healthy, toward wellness. So start tweaking these things a little bit at a time. And life really does open up and get better, even in the midst of crisis. Yes, it does. It does. And then um, the second definition is a time when difficult or important decisions must be made. So that is, what are your thoughts on that? When, once you have left the ceiling, and I, as, as for me, I don't know about you, but when I leave the chandelier, I go into kind of a binge mode of research and action where I'm trying to find information, support, solutions, what the, my footing, whatever is next. I'm off that ceiling and I'm going to work and I want action now. I do. I I agree with you and I do the same thing we've talked about this as well that you know I really have to research and get myself educated about everything every possibility but I took this meaning a time when difficult or important decisions must be made as me still hanging on to the chandelier okay. right that I haven't that that I remember there was a sense of immediacy and urgency that I had to make a decision and I had to do it right now in this moment or there was going to be a death right so 
So I wasn't in the right state of mind. I definitely was not prepared and should not have been making decisions, right? I, I should have been kind of getting myself off the chandelier before I was making those decisions. I would invite our listeners to check out my book on Amazon, Unhooked, A Mother's Story of Unhitching from the Roller Coaster of Her Son's Addiction. As well, I would also invite you to join alliesinrecovery.net. And now back to the show. Okay, so yes, yeah, so the immediacy and the urgency behind the decision making was really difficult and it was a time when I probably shouldn't have been making decisions. Um, and we've kind of talked about this in the past, but uh, this is, I lucked out because my son, when we were in crisis, he immediately ended up going into a rehab facility down in Florida. And you guys, I want to say, had serious crisis. I mean, we had crisis where it was more of a threat and conflict behavior. You had medical crisis with his walking in on overdoses and things. I mean, we have both been through the fear of life and death. You had actual situational life and death. Right. And, And there was no question. Like, he... He did not argue. He was going to treatment. He did not argue. He did not fight it. He knew he wasn't coming home with us. Or if he was, it was short term and it was only it was only transitional until he went into treatment. And so luckily we were able to do that. And really in that particular instance, there wasn't a lot of decision making to make. And so I guess by the time he was in the treatment facility, I knew I couldn't make any good decisions. So I basically ended up deferring all of my decisions to his drug counselor in uh, at the treatment facility. And Anything and everything that man told me to do is what I did. And he started off right away with, I want you to go and I want you to find a meeting. And he, and he was very, it doesn't Al-Anon matter. Anon or yep. support something. Codependence kind of. Anonymous. Yeah. He was just, just get out there. And in fact, he even said to me, if you can't find those meetings, I want you to go to an AA meeting or an NA meeting. Some meeting, I want get to a meeting, right? Get, get to a, a meeting. step or some kind of recovery yep. support. I can't stress that enough. Yep. And that was... That was the start of it, and we were very we were very fortunate in that we continued to have counseling over the phone with our son. So their their structure and their support system for us as a family was fantastic, and I needed that. I needed someone to tell me what to do. Right. Really, I needed someone to tell me what the hell to do because I sure <laughs> as heck had no idea. So if you don't know what to do, I mean, I think once the crisis has entered your life and you know, okay, this is what we're dealing with, even if we have a span of peace, this could rise up again. Because I always kind of looked at the addiction like that movie character Predator. It would return in different form and just as vicious. And I would think we got it conquered and it would come in another way. And you never, you couldn't figure out what was the head or the tail. So in the times of, you know, peace or calm, I think you have websites on hand. You have phone numbers in your cell phone to call for emergencies. There are numbers you can text the word home or help or something like that, and somebody will text you back. I know one is like 741-741, and they primarily focus with teens, but they'll help anybody. They'll send an ambulance. They'll send a police car. They'll have a counselor on the line. They'll send suicide prevention. And sometimes all you can do is shoot off a text. Email a a pastor, a counselor, a court therapist. Have these things in place 
place so that when decisions need to be made or things are rising up like a hurricane, you can plant your feet firmly and at least make some decision to reach out for help. Right. And I can, I can remember back, and I actually wrote a couple of things down. I remember back when I was in crisis and I was first going to meetings and I was first trying to make sense of all of this. I needed two things. I needed someone to tell me that there was hope. Yes. And when I say hope, I don't mean wishy-washy hope. I don't mean go home and pray and there's hope and, you know, there's always a chance. You need specific I, hope. Right. I needed very specific hope. I needed it to be realistic. Yeah. Okay, this is going to be a long and difficult journey, but he can do it and you can support him in this. It's going to be hard for you. It's going to be hard for your family, but there is hope. Yes. And we and and we're gonna try and we're gonna try and get you there. And and I find that when I'm working with families now, when I'm at meetings and I see uh, families just introduced to this kind of crisis, those are the words that I try and give them. I try and give them, okay, there is hope. There yes. there is hope and you can't give up. And I'm gonna, you know, I'm we're gonna be here to support you. And uh, it is realistic, it's hard, it's not easy, but there is hope. Then the second thing, there was a second thing that I needed, and I see this happen, and I'm sure you see this happen in a lot of meetings, where I needed someone to tell me what to do. I needed, I guess first I needed someone to tell me that I could do something. And then I needed someone to tell me that, you know, exactly what it is that I could do. Or suggestions of what to do. So exactly. Steps to take. Exactly. Numbers to call. Action to take. Books to read. I mean, you exactly, you, exactly, you're, and you're that's flailing. Right, exactly. I was flailing, and no one was telling me anything. No one would say to me, "You know, you could do this." And and when I'm working with families, young, uh, families that are. Uh, in the beginning stages of everything, I try and do that. I try and say to them, the good news is that there's hope for recovery, that things will get better. And the good news is that you, you do have some things that you can go out and do. So when you leave this meeting tonight or when you go home, you can start looking up your local shelters in the area. You can start uh, putting together some some crisis hotline numbers for your loved one. You can go to the CVS, the local CVS or your local pharmacy, and you can get some Narcan. You can figure out what to tell them you'll do with their dog or their cat or their, their children, or, you know, things like that. Very specific. All sorts of stuff. Because in the meantime, you're pacing the floor anyway, so might right. as well prepare and get informed. Right. Or what about, you know, one of the biggest things that, that, I think I, I really wish that someone had said to me was, you need to come up with a family plan. Not yeah. just you yep. by yourself. You need to come up with a family plan. So everybody that's a part of this needs to be on the same page or at least to uh, as close to the same page as you can possibly get them. And I wish that someone had said those things to me, you know, and it, because it would it would have... Um, it would have focused me a lot sooner and it would have given me some sense of hope and some sense of I have some importance in this and I might be able to make a difference. Right. I agree. 
you know what, I want to add to that because I needed hope and I needed specific actions to take, but I also needed some bottom lines. And I was just thinking about that when you were talking. Um, bottom line, this is what it is. This is how it could end up. This is the direction to take. This is what's necessary. Um, and I was finishing craft training today with Dominique, who is the founder of Allies in Recovery. And she mm-hmm. trains on that. And craft is the community. It's getting the family and the entourage around addiction, the person who's addicted, healthier to modify behavior. She was talking about um, how people will analyze the psychology of the behavior. And I had just had somebody, you know, Greg, that runs the SOBA treatment facility was telling me he will spend hours on the phone with a mom or parents or wife who is analyzing this behavior and you almost can't contain yourself. You want to, to unload to somebody, well, this is who I know my pers- my son to be. This is how my wife normally behaves. This is everything I'm seeing. This is what I'm hoping they'll get back to or become. And I needed somebody at a bottom line, let's just, you know, we know that addictions entered the picture. There's not a whole lot of psychology that you need to analyze. It's, this is the new behavior. This is right. what's presented again. It's bottom line. What's the solution? Because I would get stuck running with that analogy and wanting to talk about it and talk about it and obsess, figure it out, come up with ways to intercept the behavior. And a lot of times it might be a mental health issue that was there before. It might be mental health that's caused by substance use. It doesn't matter. You're in the midst of this. I I needed someone to bottom line me and stop me from running that mental race. Right. And I realized, I realized that like we were dealing with mental illness long before the addiction or SUD, uh, substance use disorder. But I knew Oh boy, I've got to, he, or I've got to, he's got to get his substance use under control before we can even attack this other stuff. Oh, yes, yes. Right? How do you work on mental well. illness? I mean, they're not, they're not, their brains are not functioning properly. And you don't even know if it's mental illness that's on its own or how bad it is until you get the substance use. Right. That's, that's true. Deal with that first. It's kind of the lesser of two crises or right. the bigger of two crises, I should say, to deal right. with that first. I absolutely, that's vital to know that. I agree. I agree. So anything more on the difficult when you're still hanging with one arm from the chandelier? <laughs> Um, no, I guess not. That's good information. Um, and then the third definition is the, the meaning of crisis is the turning point of a disease, which I look at addiction as a disease, the disease model or disorder, when an important change takes place, indicating either recovery or death. Um, and one thing I wanted to note is that when a crisis hits, is this crisis real or perceived? Could this current difficulty be a good thing or kind of a change in direction where we're finally going to head toward recovery, if that makes sense? Is this a turning point or is this another situation I need to panic with and look at fatalistically and defeated and, oh, my goodness, everything's terrible? And also, um, the... The other thing about it is, is with worrying and trying to analyze and pacing the floor and staying up all night, is that, does that change anything? Does that help the situation? It doesn't. It doesn't. And so putting it off, that, that worrying might be 
beneficial because maybe your mind will be in a better spot that you can make a decision, then you can really analyze the situation. Is this a life or death situation? Or is this something I can really attack in the morning? Right. And is this going to lead us to recovery? You know, a lot of people will say the worst case scenario is they can't imagine a son or daughter ending up in jail. But a lot of times that's what catapulted them toward treatment or um, that they have to go face somebody they own a debt to or that they spend a night or two. You know, my son spent a couple of nights not long in a dugout that he played baseball from. And that felt like the worst possible scenario, you know, next to death or prison. And that is what sent him to end a recovery was having to live like that. So could this be a, a, a turning point? Right. Hands off the situation. I've done everything I can. It's up to him to take the reins and let's see how this plays out now because this could very well be the turning point. Right. Right. Um, kind of like let natural consequences happen. You know, right. to be honest with you, staying in the dugout at least he's staying in the dugout, right? He's not on the streets. You know, it's not, it's not so bad. And maybe it's an incredibly uncomfortable position and maybe it's just an opportunity for him to learn. Yeah, and now he, he mentions that when he talks about his story is that, that I had to get to that point where I sat and I could almost hear the crowd from when I'd hit home runs and I'm sitting in this dugout with nothing. And I thought, look at what has happened. That was right. the most eye-opening moment for him. So that turning point ended up being what led to recovery. Before we go on, I'd like to remind our listeners to join alliesinrecovery.net. There is a wealth of information about improving the family situation. There's more of our podcasts and a large community of families just like yours dedicated to supporting one another in our struggles with the addiction of a loved one. That's alliesinrecovery.net. And now back to the show. And then the Greek definition, again, I wanted to highlight on this really quick and I think you'll relate, and some of this I learned from craft, is that crisis actually means decisions. So again, bringing it back to our wellness and what we can do. Mm -hmm. um, As for me in the midst of that, I had a post-it note everywhere. I had it on my desk at work. I had it in my car that a, um, a court therapist, my friend had told me to write down. And when those moments hit and I would start surging at 80% or above and just going crazy, she would say, don't make a decision right then. Ask these questions. What am I feeling? What can I do? What am I going to do? And even asking those questions, I didn't have to answer them right away. That pulled me out of the storm of it. And then I just started to, you know, pay attention to my instincts and intuition because they'll, you know, that stuff will kind of lead you if you calm yourself down enough to just not run with it. Another thing that I did, um, and, and I'm sure a lot of people out there might understand this a little bit, but I found that once I stopped reacting and I didn't do anything, that I was actually doing something different. And that maybe by doing nothing at all, I was causing change. And then maybe do nothing until you know what something to do. You know? Right. I've also found that, that I, can, uh, I can feel incredibly frustrated because I don't know the solution or I don't have the answer. I can't make that decision right away. And I'll feel very, very frustrated. But I find that if I wait, it's weird. It's, a, it's 
just a weird sensation that comes over me, the answer will just come to me. It, I believe it does. And, you know, I learned through the craft process as well, the 10 types of distorted thinking. Have you heard of those? And you don't even know you're doing them. I was thinking I've done all 10 probably yeah. in the last 30 days, not even related to my, you know, my son and his life, especially since we're so far out of it. But we don't even know we do those things or that they're distorted and not just normal because right. we have to kind of unlearn everything we thought we were supposed to do. Um, and I won't go into them, but I'll just, I wanted to name them. It's the awfulizing, which mm-hmm. that is the fatalistic worst case scenario thinking tunnel vision. That's where you can't think about anything else. You're obsessing the black and white, all or nothing thinking, generalizing. It must be this. It's going to end up like that. Yep. The projecting, um, what I think or feel or how I see things is I put it into the situation. Negativity, worst case scenario again, blame, unfairness, shoulds. I should do this. I should have done that. I should do this. My, I had a therapist tell me, get rid of that word should altogether. And if anybody comes to you with statements, you should immediately rise up against that because shoulds are unhealthy. Well, it's totally useless. Yeah. Totally useless totally. because it, it, it does nothing. It does nothing. And then the last one, I was like, oh, goodness, that was listed in the 10 types of distorted thinking was the heaven's reward type of thinking. Have you thought of that? Or have you heard of that one? I have, actually, yes. That's the thanks I get, you know? <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> I was like, as, I think as long as it doesn't become a habit and a pattern, I mean, I think we are all, nobody's immune. We're all prone to one way or another. We've been taught certain ways. But when it becomes extreme and it becomes your go-to and it's making things worse, that's when you're somewhat disordered. Right. I think that's when you start to fall into a whole, uh, um, it's all about me. This is only about me. This is right. embarrassing this is only for me. About me. Right. Afraid, I'm afraid. Do you know what this is doing to me? Do you know what this has done to your, I mean, right. that, that, those, those things are true as well, but it's not one-sided. It's a family disease and everyone needs to modify. Right. And, and you need to feel your feelings, but you also have to remember that they're just feelings. They're not facts. They're not, they're not tangible items. They're just feelings and they will pass. And one question I also learned to ask is, is this my crisis? And if, I, if it's not, if I didn't create it and I can't resolve it, I have two things I do. I step aside and I stiff arm it. Instead of triaging everyone's urgency, everyone, you know, anybody else's urgency can't just be unloaded on me to where then I start coming up with stressful ways to solve it. I always have to step back and say, is this even my crisis? Is this even mine? Right. Yeah, so I think that's all I had on that one. I had another point to make, but I I did study something interesting, or I watched this video, and this is kind of gross, but it's really interesting. Um, As far as stress goes and crisis, there was a a study done recently, and I can send you the information, or anyone can email me, Annie Unhooked at Gmail, and I'll send it to you as well. I like to pull these studies and TED Talks and lectures and things like that. There was a study done about stress, sweat, and pads were put in the, in the underarms and the armpit of people that were running and doing stress tests on a treadmill. And then sweat pads were put on the underarms of people who were skydiving and jumping out of airplanes. And then those two types of pads were taken and given to people who were going through a brain scan and they were smelling them. And the ones that smelled the pads that had been in the armpits of people skydiving, it triggered a fear response in their brain to where we literally can smell a threat. We can literally sense 
threat and crisis. And that is profoundly interesting to me because sometimes it's not my crisis. Sometimes it's not a crisis. You know, we, we have to pay attention to our intuition and our instincts. If I walk into every, you know, scary situation or every time it's dark out and my keys are in my hand and I'm ready for the attack, I'm not going to be able to hear my instincts. But if I am in peace and I'm aware and I'm vigilant and I'm wise, then when those instincts start to rise up, I'm going to smell that threat. Right. I'm going to be able to discern, is this a crisis? Is this my crisis? What can I do? Very good. Very good. I don't know if you saw this. There's this show on the brain, um, and they had this, uh, how do I explain this? They had, we have these mirror neurons. So when we watch a movie that's scary, if we were to look at our own faces in a mirror while we're watching the movie, our faces become afraid, just like the people, the actors in the movie. Or if I watch you tell a joke and you start laughing, then my face will mirror your face and I will start laughing. And they did this experiment where they put Botox. They took people that they injected with Botox who now can't, their, you know, their muscles in their face are now paralyzed. And they found, they ran this experiment and they found that those people that now have Botox cannot identify the, uh, the facial expressions and the emotion attached to the facial expressions of other people. And they believe that it's because they can't move their face and indicate to their brain uh, what's going on. So like if someone else is laughing and they can't laugh because they've got this Botox that's paralyzed them, their brain actually doesn't understand that the other person is laughing. Wow. I find that interesting. Really, I find it very interesting. Take, that's, that goes along with projecting. Right. That's really interesting. Isn't it? Yeah. We're all connected. Uh, yes, we, we just are. are. <laughs> My last question, and I know you feel like I do, um, is, okay, so let's say our relationship's in in crisis. My relationship with my son, with my daughter, with, you know, my loved one, and they're out of the house, and it's in crisis. So in the midst of that crisis, do I cut them off completely and have no contact and say, well, you'll hear from me, or I'll answer your call or text the day you tell me you're ready to go into treatment? Because a lot of people say, well, just attach until, cut them off until... In that time of, I always call that a painful time, the until time, do I cut them off? Okay, so for me, I I can't, you know, and I'm not judging anybody else, you know, there may be situations, I don't know, you know, there may be a situation in my life where I might end up cutting him off or something like that, but for me, it was incredibly important that I keep the contact and the communication open, which is what brought me to allies in recovery to begin with, was that was my line of thinking. I had to have some kind of contact. I had to have some kind of communication. And I kind of saw it as, um, I saw it as this, these different paths that I was guiding my loved one through. And 
the bad paths were getting cut off with each thing that I did. And only the path to recovery was opening up for him. And what I mean by that is he would come to me for money and my answer would be no. So I'm cutting off a path to using. And the path is now narrowing in to only recovery. Or he might, right, he might... um, he might come to me and lie to me, and I don't accept his lie, and I, send, and I set up my boundaries to keep myself safe. I'm cutting off that bad path. That's a bad path. We're not going there. The only path you're going to take with me is down this good path to recovery. Yeah, we call that boxing them out, and that's to where you cut off the behavior. You cut off your interference with the natural consequences that they're inviting with their behavior and decisions, but you don't, in my opinion, I didn't believe in cutting off my son, and and I'm not judging, again, anyone else that does, and there, there were times that I maybe had to, for a span of time, a no-access boundary, but I, I couldn't do that completely and say, until you're ready to make a change. I just couldn't do that. It wasn't realistic. I'm completely different when it comes to my mom because I'm sometimes not safe with her. She hurts me too much or does, you know, unhealthy things. And, and it's different for everyone. You have to yes. do with what you feel safe and at peace with and what's, you know, what you feel is wise, get counsel, go with your gut, whatever. It's your decision. But when it came to my son, I would think, you know, if he's out there and I don't know where he's staying or whatever, I can't let a day go by that he doesn't know you matter. I right. love you. We are rooting for you because what if four weeks go by and I had said, you know, don't call me, don't text me, and I'm not going to respond until, and in that time he's still using and spiraling and has no one and feels isolated and ostracized, and then something happens. At least if I kept that bridge to communication open, you're loved, you matter, we want to see this get better, fight for your life, I'm here for you, I'll, you know, make treatment possible. If that happens, we've had four weeks of loving communication, at least from my end. And I'm, you know, you never know what could happen. But that was, for me, what I had to make peace with, that I could not at least have communication. Right. And I I did the same type of thing. I made sure that I don't care how bad my conversation got with with my son or how difficult things got. I made sure that he heard, I love you every single day, even in the midst of this awful argument that we might be having, I still love you. And I knew that every, every night that I put my head on the pillow, I knew he knew that I loved him. Yes. Right. And also I wanted to make sure that he knew that when he was ready for recovery, we were going to be there. Yeah. And we would help navigate the system. We would put him in contact with the right people. We would do everything we could to support recovery. I will defy the laws of nature and gravity to get to you and, yep. and, and help you and support you and make that happen. But as far as the behavior, the conflict and your consequences, that's what's cut off. Right. The addiction is cut off. You are never cut off. Right. Exactly. Exactly what I did. I, I won't engage in the arguments. I, you know, I worked very hard learning how to not engage, not engage in that addiction. Don't take the hooks. I didn't take the hooks. Exactly. I didn't take the hooks. I didn't engage in it. I, you know, and, and it was an, a, a very long and involved learning process. It is. I, and I made sure to offer up all of those, um, 
I made sure to reward good behavior. I made sure to offer up, you know, if you need help with this, I'll help you with that. If you need a ride to a shelter, I'll give you a ride to a shelter. If you need a, a telephone number to someone to get you into treatment, I've got a telephone number for you. Um, but I also but yeah, I did the same thing. When you're in that process of learning not to take the hooks and how to handle the conflict and yep. de-escalate it and all of that, as far as kind of letting yourself off the hook too, I would fail miserably sometimes, but I couldn't beat myself up or try to go overboard to, to compensate for it. I had to just make amends, make it right, do the next right thing, keep going. You don't have right. time to sit in the midst of that and hate yourself for it and feel like a failure. There's no pass or fail. There's only do the right. next right thing. Just keep trying. And I still fail at it. I still use everything that I learned on allies and recovery. I still use it to this day. I use it on my husband and I still fail at it. I'm not, I'm not perfect at it. Right. I'm still on my journey. I'm still there. Right. I think we all are, but progress over perfection any day. This is true. Well, I loved this. And um, if anybody has questions, please contact us on the alliesandrecovery.net site. You can email us. I have an unhooked Facebook page. We are always here for you, and we have been in the trenches where you are, maybe have been, and we just want to help. Yes, and you can definitely contact us on the alliesandrecovery.net website. You can email us through that website as well as I also have a new uh, blog site that I opened right. up, Laurie McDougall, and that's M-A-C-D-O-U-G-A-L-L.com. And we, we post a lot of um, each other's stuff on both of our Facebook. So Lori has a rest support group and I have the unhooked book, which I'm changing that to any high water recovery writer. So you can look right. us up, message us anytime. We are available. I respond. I believe Lori does too to every yep. single message at some point with heartfelt hope. Yes. Thank you, Annie. Thanks this so was much. great. And I love this time. discussion. I did as well. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this Coming Up for Air podcast with Annie Highwater and Lori McDougall. If you're interested in reading Annie's book, Unhooked, A Mother's Story of Unhitching from the Roller Coaster of Her Son's Addiction, it's available online. Or you can simply follow the link at the bottom of one of Annie's blog posts on alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up for Air is sponsored by Allies in Recovery, the online home for families facing the addiction of a loved one. Allies in Recovery can help you understand your loved one's struggle and offers effective communication strategies that encourage treatment and discourage use. In addition to interactive e-learning, Allies in Recovery offers expert advice, podcasts, tools for evaluating treatment options, recent news items, and access to a large community of families coping with issues similar to yours. Join alliesinrecovery.net today. That's alliesinrecovery, all one word, dot net. Thank you for listening. Our theme music was performed and composed by cellist Eric Corey.